We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to our Election Day, Day 2 Election Day program of uh, the installment of the Dan Proft Show. Happy to have you back. As uh, we uh, do not have a victor as we're standing here today speaking, uh, President Trump took to uh, address the national audience after Joe Biden did in the wee hours this morning. Uh, first, uh, Joe Biden uh, getting up to address uh, you know, the drive-in movie attendance that uh, was in Wilmington, Delaware with him. I'm here to tell you tonight, we believe we're on track to win this election. We knew because of the unprecedented early vote and the mail-in vote that it was going to take a while. We're going to have to be patient until we, uh, the hard work of tallying the votes is finished. And it ain't over until every vote is counted, every ballot is counted. Keep the faith, guys. We're going to win this. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Apparently they want more milkshakes. Uh, then President Trump, about an hour later, um, about uh, 1.30 this morning, Chicago time, my time, uh, President Trump uh, was a uh, little less uh, uh, even handed about it in discussing uh, what uh, he saw transpiring. Millions and millions of people voted for us tonight and uh, a very sad group of people is trying to disenfranchise that group of people. And we won't stand for it. We will not stand for it. And he's mainly talking about Pennsylvania, who, uh, the Pennsylvania election authorities just sort of stopping the count uh, arbitrarily last night. And that's what President Trump zeroed in on. We won states and all of a sudden I said, what happened to the election? It's off. And we have all these announcers saying what happened? And then they said, oh, because you know what happened? They knew they couldn't win. So they said. Let's go to court. And did I predict this, Newt? Did I say this? I've been saying this from the day I heard they were going to send out tens of millions of ballots. I said exactly because either they were going to win or if they didn't win, they'll take us to court. And from there, he got even more pointed about what he thinks is being perpetrated on the American public. This is a fraud on the American public. This is an embarrassment to our country. We were getting ready to win this election. Frankly, we did win this election. We did win this election. Interesting choice to declare victory, but um, you wouldn't expect anything less from a provocateur like Trump. And he reiterated that he is prepared to go to the Supreme Court to uh, deal with uh, Pennsylvania specifically. I can only assume that's what he's referencing when it comes to their vote count because of the 
curious rules surrounding absentee ballot receipt and uh, and and counting verification and counting in Pennsylvania. So we'll be going to the U.S. Supreme Court. We want all voting to stop. We don't want them to find any ballots at four o'clock in the morning and add them to the list. Okay. It's it's a very sad. It's a very sad moment. To me, this is a very sad moment. And we will win this. And we, as far as I'm concerned, we already have won it. So I just want to thank you. So here's where we're at with the half a dozen states that are um, still undeclared uh, in terms of the victor. I'm talking about Georgia, North Carolina, Nevada, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania. Georgia, North Carolina, President Trump is up. 94% reporting in both of those states. He's up about one and a half points in Georgia, which is about 102,000 votes. Excuse me, about two point two percentage points in Georgia, which is about 100,000 votes. North Carolina, about one and a half percentage points, which is about uh, 80,000 votes. In Pennsylvania, only two, a little less than two thirds of the vote reporting. He's up uh, 11 point, 10 points, which is about uh, 530,000 votes. So those are three that he needs. Then he needs one of these next three, and he's down in all three, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Nevada. They moved overnight. He was up uh, by a few tenths of a point in Wisconsin overnight, as uh, Milwaukee County reported. He's uh, gone down 21,000 votes, three-tenths of a point, 21,000 votes. In Michigan, as Wayne County, Detroit, has reported this morning, he has gone down 16,000 votes. But there are some red-leaning counties around Wayne County, Macomb and uh, Madison, as well as Kent up Grand Rapids Way, that have yet to fully report. So this is probably Michigan, probably going to be what it was in 2016, a couple thousand votes either way. And then Nevada, interestingly, uh, he's closed there. Uh, maybe the my friends at the win are going to put him over the top. He's down 8,000 votes, uh, which is six-tenths of a point. Uh, with uh, about two-thirds of the vote reporting in Nevada. That vote uh, 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 picked back up uh, this morning. So we'll continue to update uh, those states as we get uh, information. But if if he wins Nevada or Michigan, which seemed more likely than Wisconsin at this point, probably Michigan the most likely, and um, he holds in Georgia, North Carolina, which I think is more likely than not, Then it all comes down to Pennsylvania, and we're talking about the end of the week, probably at the earliest with respect to the count, and then who knows how much longer after that, pending any litigation, depending on how close it turns out to be after that count. Okay, you got all that? For more on it, we're pleased to start in Pennsylvania with our friend George Perry, who's a former federal and state prosecutor, regular contributor to the American Spectator. He blogs at knowledgeisgood.net. And uh, he's a Philadelphia guy, so he uh, knows a lot about uh, the jurisdiction we're most keenly interested in right now, or certainly one of them. George Perry, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Glad to be with you, Dan. So why don't we start with the issue that the president raised, uh, arbitrarily stopping the count in Pennsylvania. What, you know, what happened to my election? <laughs> Where'd my election go? What, 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 <laughs> what, what about, what about that, that count stoppage? Why? It, it didn't happen necessarily in these other jurisdictions, these other states. Uh, no, no, it didn't. Uh, however, it's it's kind of complicated in Pennsylvania, <clears throat> out in the western part of the state where Trump is expected to do very well. Uh, there are seven counties where that he won in 2016 
they're, they're small population counties, but they said, look, we only have enough of a budget and enough manpower to count or to man the uh, polling places on election day. So we're going to have to wait until the day after the election to count the mail-in ballots. So you're talking about 150,000 votes divided up among those those seven counties. That may or may not be the margin of, of victory here. But when you get to the main chance, that is Philadelphia and the counties surrounding um, Philadelphia, which are very heavily, heavily for Biden, they stopped counting. Excuse me. They they stopped counting for a while the uh, mail-in ballots from there, and and nobody really knows why that happened. The key here is that they're expecting the mail-in ballots to skew heavily in favor of Biden because that was the Democrats' whole strategy: go with mail-in ballots, and. The Republicans went for a big vote on Election Day. So Trump has got this 10-point lead right now with 79% of the vote in, at least at this stage. But that could disappear in the course of the day. Um, the, the thing that Trump is talking about in going to court is that in Pennsylvania, we had a clearly defined deadline for the receipt of all ballots, and that was by 8 p.m. on Election Day. But in the end of September, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, and understand, we elect our judges in, in Pennsylvania, a four-Democrat majority on the Pennsylvania Supreme Court changed the election rules. And they, they changed them so that the deadline, the clear bright-line deadline for receiving ballots on Election Day was moved out three days and they said, well, this isn't a problem because uh, as long as the mail-in ballots are postmarked by Election Day, what's the big deal? But then they said, oh, and by the way, if a mail-in ballot that comes in has an illegible postmark or no postmark at all, it's going to be presumed to have been received by Election Day. I mean, this is an open invitation to just massive vote harvesting and fraud coming out of Philadelphia, where we haven't had an honest election since 1636, and we're not about to start now. Uh, George, uh, George, let's hold it right there, because I want to I want to talk about that decision, uh, both with respect to uh, the, 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 the uh, lack of a need for a postmark, as well as any signature check to, for verification purposes, and, and what the Supreme Court did and might do prospectively, get your legal expertise on it. More with George Perry, former federal and state prosecutor and contributor to the American Spectator, right after this. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're speaking with George Perry about uh, Philadelphia and Pennsylvania. Uh, he is a former federal and state prosecutor, regular contributor to the American Spectator, who blogs at knowledgeisgood.net, and he's written a good piece, Stealing Pennsylvania, at spectator.org. 
that's uh, worth checking out to frame this discussion as the election may drag on, depending on Trump's success in Michigan, Wisconsin and or Nevada may drag on for several days pending the Pennsylvania count. So, George, before the break, you were talking about what uh, the courts did in Pennsylvania, allowing for uh, absentee ballots to be received uh, up to three days after the election. And if there's not a postmark, they'll assume that they were mailed in good faith before Election Day, which is bizarre. And uh, in addition to that, I understand, too, there's like no no signature check as a safeguard for the veracity of the particular name on that ballot. And so is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. What happened was there was a second decision out of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. The same four Democrat judges said, oh, and by the way, if the signatures on the mail-in ballots don't match the signatures on file for the voters, that's not a problem. There's going to be a rebuttable presumption that the signature, that is a valid ballot, and it'll be up to the persons challenging that ballot to prove otherwise. Well, what does that mean? It, 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 means, to... yeah, it means Donald Trump is in Warren Zevon territory. Lawyers, guns, and money send him to Philadelphia, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, gosh, I wish I had thought of that line. Uh, yeah. Uh, it, well, and, and, but how do, you, how do you go about fighting that? I mean, if you can't make the argument uh, that, hey, look, these signatures don't match, what are you left with? Do you have to go out and bring in handwriting experts, voters, or, or handwriting, yeah, handwriting experts. experts? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, so I mean, so this 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 could potentially be. I mean, again, if it's close enough that it matters, given in the context of the other states that are still pending, this could be the 2020 version of the hanging Chad with handwriting analysts sitting with election minders and running through the challenges from from both sides that will ultimately be litigated through the courts. Yeah, it's, look, it's a hopeless mess, and the chaos has been created by our state Supreme Court. And they're not allowed under the Constitution, the U.S. Constitution, to change the election procedures. That's up to the legislature. And here we have four elected Democrats on our state Supreme Court who have basically created complete and total chaos here in Pennsylvania. And uh, just so uh, Justice Roberts uh, siding with the uh, uh, well deadlocking uh, at the time with the uh, with the uh, vacancy, uh, Amy Coney Barrett had not filled it yet, declined to take up this matter. Uh, What's uh, your assessment of his willingness to revisit it, uh, the court's willingness to revisit it uh, were President Trump to petition the court? Well, the court, three conservatives on the court have said, you know, you can come back to us after the election if you want, because we haven't ruled on the merits of the challenge to what the Pennsylvania Supreme Court has done. But here's an an issue. The the U.S. Supreme Court has already said in, in another case involving another state that they don't want to come along and change or invalidate ballots that were cast in good faith under the rules that prevailed at the time they were cast. Well, however awful these rules are, they're the rules that were in place when all these ballots were supposedly cast. So the U.S. Supreme Court may not act. However, we are segregating the ballots that come in after Election Day so that we were supposedly going to have a a body of of ballots that could either be invalidated or not invalidated by the U.S. Supreme Court. But that timeline thing uh, is really working around the edges. The, The big issue right now is, even though Trump is comfortably ahead because of his gigantic 
turnout on Election Day, we have yet to count at this stage about half of the outstanding mail-in ballots, not just the ones that have come in late. And how, how many is that? that? What's that number? <clears throat> well, we're – yeah, I think we're looking at, you know, at this stage uh, maybe 700,000 ballots, 800,000 maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that number keeps fluctuating. And again – they're expected to skew heavily for Biden. Right. So putting aside the late arriving ballots, this thing could come right down to a knife edge in Pennsylvania. And it may be that the late arriving ballots, the ones that are right now riding around in the trunks of Democrat committeemen's cars down in Philadelphia, uh, they could tip the, the balance of the election here. And uh, if, there's, if there's a group that is capable of harvesting votes and creating fake ballots, we got just the guys in Philadelphia to do it. Mm. So, well, and, and to that's your, why. Yeah, and to your point, that, I mean, you're, if you're t- let's say you're it's eight hundred thousand ballots, and this has been part of the the difficulty is getting an exact uh, handle on how many ballots are outstanding in in some of these states as right. you're trying to project out uh, scenarios. But let's say it's eight hundred thousand. Trump's up by about five hundred thirty thousand in Pennsylvania right now, so that would require Biden to get. Uh, you know, 63, 64 percent of those uh, mail-in ballots, which is certainly plausible as, as you know, yeah. more Democrats uh, obviously voted uh, early versus Republicans. So so that is a plausible scenario that that could bring it right down to the wire. And this is why uh, pollsters like Robert Cahaley, who uh, turned out to be largely right again, uh, certainly compared to his brother and Robert Cahaley over Trafalgar, was saying, you know, Trump needs to win Pennsylvania by a couple of points to account for the fraud that will go on. And yeah. and, and so that that's yeah. that's, you know, that's sort of being being borne out right now as you're seeing it from what I'm hearing. Yeah, absolutely. Kahaley is right on the target here. He said four to five points would be a comfortable margin for Trump to overcome the fraud that's going to take place. And um, I think he is just right on, just spot on. And the. The issue right now is, um, what is, are the Republicans getting ready to go back to the U.S. Supreme Court? And after what Trump said last night or Sounds this morning, like yeah. I expect they're on their way right now. Yeah, and so and then and then you're right. I mean, the important thing you mentioned is about uh, the standard where they may have to present. Um, they have that find to the extent it exists, people acting not in good faith to. Uh, to intentionally defraud the system by voting twice, by not uh, providing uh, by providing a false identity or, or, or what have you. Right. I mean, that's what you're suggesting. Yeah, right. I mean, the, the, the signature issue is a stunner. I mean, how the the, US, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court can say, hey, the signatures on the ballots don't match the signatures on file. That's not a problem. If you showed up in person and signed in to vote, and your signature didn't match what's in the in the book, they would give you a provisional ballot yeah. and or a, or, put into a separate bin. Or, or, ask, or, may have been, yeah. or ask for you to show ID yeah. or something like that, right. Yeah, right, right. So, I mean, this is, this is just, as I say, the, the uncertainty that has been sown into the national election comes down to the actions of four elected Democrats on the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. And if Biden winds up winning, I predict those four elected Democrats on the Pennsylvania Supreme Court are all going to have great jobs in the Biden administration. What's your gut on Pennsylvania, if you had to call it? 
right now, I would say that Trump's ahead by 10 points right now. And you can't call it. I can't call it. Yeah, that's that's telling. George Perry, former federal and state prosecutor, regular contributor to the American Spectator, who blogs at knowledgeisgood.net. Thanks for joining us again, George. Appreciate it. Dan, great to be with Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show and uh, moving from our conversation with George Perry, uh, mainly focused on Pennsylvania to uh, some of the other states still pending, including Nevada and Arizona. First, Nevada, the uh, Las Vegas Review Journal reporting this morning that there will be no update in the Nevada election results until tomorrow. So unlikely we'll have the declaration of a presidential winner today. And Nevada right now, Trump is down by 8,000 votes, but only two thirds of the vote has reported. One other point, and this is about Arizona. Uh, Doug Ducey, the governor, tweeting, it's far too early to call the election in Arizona. Election day votes are not fully reported, and we have not even started to count early ballots dropped off at the polls. In Arizona, we are We protected Election Day. Let's count the votes before making declarations. The suggestion is in the Trump camp, as I understand it from talking to somebody on the Trump campaign, is they still believe that they have a real chance to win Arizona by something on the order of 30,000 votes based on these absentee ballot votes that Doug Ducey was talking about, which are actually breaking for Trump by about two to one initially, at least. And they think if the universe, I think it was on the order of 500,000 votes, breaks 60-40 for Trump, then they win Arizona by, as I said, approximately 30,000 votes. So these are pending matters that are yet to be fully fleshed out, at least according to the Trump campaign. For more on all this, we're pleased to be joined again by Andy Crawl, who's the Washington bureau chief for Rolling Stone magazine. Andy, thanks for being with us again. Appreciate it. Great to be back. So I know uh, the Biden campaign uh, announced this morning they expected an outcome to be announced today. But these uh, complications in the Sun Belt, in addition to Pennsylvania and, uh, you know, the threat of litigation that President Trump made uh, in his early morning speech today. I think we're looking at more of a Thursday sense of resolution at this point. This is nothing new for Arizona, the state with a strong bipartisan tradition of voting by mail. So we have some time there. We'll probably get maybe Wisconsin. The only thing about Wisconsin is we could see a recount there if the margin of victory is within about 1%. So, you know, this thing is going to take some time. I think that both campaigns are both trying to keep their supporters enthusiastic and energized, but not get too overconfident with the final result at this point. Right. And your point about Wisconsin and a recount, I mean, right now with 95 percent reporting, just to restate, Biden is up about 21,000 votes. That's seven tenths of a point. So to your point about if it's in a point, they could push for a recount and make it a more protracted affair in Cheddarland there. One other thing about Arizona, this is sort of interesting. I haven't heard anybody bring this up, but it, it speaks to maybe what's in part happening in Arizona and maybe why President Trump lost. 
Arizona if he indeed does end up losing it. The tax referendum and the income tax for education. This was a almost a doubling of the state income tax on incomes over $250,000 from 4.5% to 8%. And right now, with, again, about 85% of the vote reporting, as is the case with the presidential election, 53 yes for the tax increase, 47% no. There was a, a graduated state income tax uh, referendum in Illinois, my home state, not exactly as purple as Arizona, to say the least, that went down by 10 points. That's sort of remarkable in these times of pandemic with a Republican governor who easily won re-election that a majority would support something like that. And, and maybe that speaks to the continuing uh, changeover of the electorate in Arizona. In addition to on top of the sort of demographic changes in the population growth that you see in that state, Arizona, you'll remember, was the leading edge of the red for ed grassroots movement that had sparked up in the last couple of years. That was really a kind of very organic, though obviously backed by the teachers unions and it really got momentum, organizing effort to try to get more funding to better fund public schools in Arizona. And what was interesting about Red for Ed, not only did it sort of spark similar efforts around the country, but it had a very crossover appeal to it, not to mention a sort of a crossover membership base. And you had a lot of suburban parents, you had a lot of moms, people who weren't necessarily obvious progressives and Democrats, though they were in that coalition as well, who had kind of sort of thrown up their hands and said, this is enough. You know, our schools are are deprived of funding. We got to do better. And I think what you're seeing in Arizona is a sort of continuation of that red for red energy and that tax referendum that you described. It's very much connected to red for red. But I think you see this sort of a a groundswell coming up from those education based, uh, you know, uh, grassroots efforts and get up the vote efforts out in Arizona that has gone up the ballot and will probably help Vice President, former Vice President Biden. But again, we're still we're still waiting for more ballots to get counted out there. It could take a few more days, possibly, before we get a full picture in Arizona. So I don't want to get too overconfident about that. Even though I think AP, I think Fox is actually has stuck with its call on Arizona, but the Times and, and oh, I thought the news outlets haven't. Oh, I thought they pulled off it, but I, I may be wrong. I'm I'm, I'm going on limited sleep, so I, I don't know. When we come back with the Rolling Stones' Andy Krull, I want to um, go back to Arizona and talk about uh, you know, how complicated people are uh, when it comes to their voting preferences. And I don't understand. The Dan Proft Show. We're back with the Rolling Stones' Andy Crawl. Before the break, we we're talking about uh, all things related to Tuesday's election, of course. And uh, I wanted to raise the issue of um, this uh, Arizona ballot initiative. On the one hand, you have a very robust school choice program in Arizona, and in part because it disproportionately impacts lower income families positively that are disproportionately Latino. 
Doug Ducey, for example, has created a real constituency for the Republican Party and around him as governor for advancing the school choice program that through tax credits that led him to an easy reelection victory two years ago, even when Martha McSally lost to Kristen Sinema. It was marked. And yet uh, two years later, perhaps some of the same people supporting tax credits and school choice are supporting tax increases for the public school system. And normally those are separate and distinct cohorts, maybe not so much in Scottsdale and the population centers in Arizona. You know what another interesting version of this is this notion. I mean, so maybe in Arizona we're talking about a kind of a crossover voter here who maybe has been Republican in the past but voted for this uh, tax increase for, for school funding, maybe voted for Biden, maybe didn't. You know, another kind of crossover that, that caught my eye, the you know, really strong support for a fifteen dollar minimum wage that was on the ballot in Florida at the same time that President Trump put in a really impressive performance in Florida. And so it leads me to think like, okay, who who are the fight for 15 slash right. Trump voters? And right. what is the combination of issues, the combination of messages that motivates someone like that? I mean, I've seen people, analysts and pollsters say, talking about this notion of sort of colorblind populism. Uh, maybe that's it. Yeah, maybe think, it is yeah, uh, yeah. multiracial populism. Yeah. But there's, the key thing, I think, here is if you're the Democratic Party, especially House Democrats and Senate Democrats, you've got to go to these places where there are interesting things happening in the turnout, and you've got to figure out what motivated these people. Because whatever the Democratic Party was selling closer to the House district level and in some of the key parts of the Senate state, people weren't buying because the Democrats have managed to somehow shrink their majority, lose part of their majority, then they're going to keep the majority itself in a presidential election year, which really is unexpected. And they don't look like they're going to take back the Senate. The Democrats have got some homework to do. A little, it feels a little bit like 2016 all over again when we were saying this exact same thing, but they've got to go to these places and figure out what is galvanizing these people to vote the way that they did. What about it being uh, largely 2016 all over again, regardless of ultimate outcome here in terms of the press coverage of President Trump of of this contest, of their understanding of the American population that they cover? Definitely some hard looks in the mirror that need to happen. Yeah, I definitely think that, that that's the case. I think that there is still too much an obsession or a fealty to the metrics and the projections and polling, certainly. I mean, it's a dismal night for a lot of a lot of pollsters on all sides of the aisle, but certainly some, some Democratic pollsters. You know, I, I published a piece on Election Day about a lot of time I'd spent in a place called Alamance County, North Carolina, which is a really fascinating place, kind of on the, the, the front edge of how America is changing and, you know, diversifying place, but also a long, you know, sort of history. You know, and you have to go to these places and meet people to really try to understand them and understand the way they think. I know that sounds really obvious, but I think, again, there is a reliance on, well, you know, the real clear politics average says this or the, uh, you know, some internal polling that this campaign slipped me says that. But I don't think that the, these kinds of measurements are picking up on the kinds of people that Democrats and, and, and you know, and, and really we're talking about the media here, that members of the media need to understand what's going on in the country and why people vote the way they do and why people think the way they think. And, you know, I've always found those trips to North Carolina so illuminating. And I kept going back because I just, you know, you see people, you meet people. If you can get them in a conversation, you can understand. I mean, the, what we're seeing today doesn't actually surprise me quite as much as one might think because I've, you know, I've met a lot of these people in places I've gone who say voted for Fight for 15 but also supported President Trump or tax increase for education but supported President Trump. So 
I think the media <laughs> in some ways didn't learn the lessons maybe of four years ago quite as well as they should have. And again, just need to get away from the computer and get out in the world a little more because these people are, are out there, as obvious as that sounds. Yeah. You've got to talk to your fellow Americans to understand what's really happening. And I wonder if if Biden ultimately is victorious. I wonder if they'll even go through the pro forma exercise they went through in 2016 of taking a pilgrimage to Western Pennsylvania to figure out why somebody voted for Trump. Uh, (laughs) uh, And and then, you know, and then uh, two months later, they snap back to. Uh, where they're comfortable on the eastern seaboard somewhere and, and never that never shall they again yeah. consider what they uh, did right after the election as sort of a uh, as sort of penance for uh, missing what was happening underneath them. I, I just I, I it just seems, um, you know, I hate to give up on people, but it seems like the D.C. press corps, generally speaking, present company excluded, is a bit of an incorrigible bunch. It's definitely a bunch that is a too ideologically similar and probably doesn't get out of its bubble nearly as much as needs to happen or doesn't do the legwork required to go to the places and, and take the time to meet people who will better help you understand the country. I mean, it's a lot easier to sit in front of your computer and look at Twitter all day long, but that ain't reporting and it certainly ain't going to help you understand um, the, you know, the way this country is changing and the reasons that people, I mean, I, you know, I think about, what we're seeing is some of the exit polls about COVID. And, yeah. you know, I mean, I, I think that the, the, the science and the data speaks for itself that this is a, this is a, a big crisis that has had a huge effect on our population in terms of health and mortality and also in, on the economy. But, you know, went to a lot of places in North Carolina where it just wasn't that big of a deal to a lot of people. It felt distant or it felt exaggerated. They didn't know someone who had been affected by COVID or they just, you know, it just was not a big factor in their voting. And whether you disagree with that person or agree with that person, you still have to, the key is to understand how they're trying to understand how they're thinking mm-hmm. and how that informs their voting. Um, you know, and so maybe if I, you know, and somebody shipped to North Carolina, when I, I met folks who just didn't think COVID was that big of a deal when they were going to vote, maybe that surprised me. Maybe, that took caught me off guard, but at least I had a bit of understanding there that, okay, well, they're good. You know, they just don't, this isn't the biggest thing. They're more concerned about reopening schools or, you know, the, their wages or their 401k than they are about, you know, the daily cases uh, in this pandemic. So you got to get out there more would be my advice to, to my colleagues. Not that they want to hear it from me anyway. <laughs> Andy Crawl, Washington Bureau Chief for Rolling Stone Magazine. Andy, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show and uh, following our conversation with Andy Crow from Rolling Stone, particularly the last piece of it, talking about uh, the press living inside their bubbles and what hasn't been learned from 2016 to 2020 and, won't, what, and what will not be learned, uh, in my estimation, regardless of the outcome, ultimate outcome from yesterday's election. Holman Jenkins had a good piece. 
sort of uh, on the uh, Holman Jenkins over at the Wall Street Journal on the occasion of uh, Glenn Greenwald resigning from the Intercept, an outlet he founded to be a check on the intelligence community for his desire to report on the failures of the intelligence community or questions about the intelligence community vis-a-vis the Hunter Biden and Biden Inc. story. Uh, Holman Jenkins suggests that it's uh, a nice time to celebrate 100 years of media lying. Uh, The 2020 memorable for a few reasons, but it wouldn't hurt to mark the 100th anniversary of journalist and critic Walter Lippmann's Liberty in the News. Uh, This is a book that uh, Lippmann wrote, uh, I think he was in his 30s, and it was a critique of media. And I I won't get too much into the history of Lippmann, but he, uh, he, he sort of argued for a constructive engagement containment of communism, but he was... um, uh, he also coined a number of terms, uh, including Cold War, as well as stereotype in the modern psychological sense of its usage. Anyway, he um, called uh, the book a classic account of how the press threatens democracy when it has an agenda other than the free flow of ideas. He complained of a press addicted to, quote, standardized con- constellations of ideas, unquote, who, quote, come to believe their habitual emphasis is the only possible one and who self-interestedly exaggerate and overplay the importance of whatever is being reported. Uh, Think about uh, the run from one moral panic to the other in the modern context. And then when that's gone, the next moral panic we're reporting on is the most important thing in the world. And uh, the other thing, if it didn't work out how we intended, well, then just forget about it. Consider, for example, Trump impeachment and its disappearance. Impeaching a president of the United States, a momentous event, not part of the 2020 presidential campaign. Sort of remarkable, isn't it? He uh, writes of uh, Lippmann, does Jenkins. He had faith in the reader not to be siloed or bubbled, as we like to say now. The public's, quote, desire to know, the dislike of being deceived and made game of, was the foundation of every Democrat hope, and a reporter's highest function was to provide relevant and reliable facts. In his professional activity, is no business of the reporters to care whose ox is gored, said Lippmann. What stand out, what's uh, stand out for me, the stands out for me, writes Jenkins, is his repeated invocation of phrases such as the uses of evidence, the standards of evidence, a sense of evidence. A century later, our profession is still one that doesn't treat evidence seriously, that a hundred times a day blithely asserts propositions that reported the reported facts don't support. A culture of actual stupidity reigns in many newsrooms where careful reasoning is jauntily eschewed in favor of treating facts as unrelated adornments on predetermined storylines. Oh, that is a line that's Lippmann-esque. There will always be hurdles to an honest and competent press as long as we have a press. Yeah, considering the quality of the intellects in the press, generally speaking, my parenthetical edition. Uh, but Jenkins points out a mainstream media in cahoots with dishonest and manipulative intelligence sources, on the other hand, is a special problem that falls to our generation to put right. Yeah, indeed it does. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to the Dan Prof Show. Follow us at danprofshow.com and on social media at Dan Prof Show. Wall Street Journal editorial board opining on Boris Johnson's second lockdown that extends to the first week of December. This after, uh, of course, the Brexit victory, this populist revolt against the ruling class in the U.K., the Eurocentric ruling class in the U.K., 
uh, then an 80 seat parliamentary majority in the UK's last general election, historic victory. And uh, now uh, Boris Johnson is fumbling and bumbling all of that political capital away over the lockdown, argues the Journal Editorial Board. Everything about the second lockdown is going wrong for Mr. Johnson so far, they write. His announcement was botched, preempted by leaks to the media from within his own government, which forced him to unveil the measures days earlier than planned. He looks muddled and indecisive because he's imposing a month-long lockdown when only weeks ago he argued a two-week lockdown would be a disaster. The nebulous science and bad economics of the new lockdown are prompting a rebellion among Tories, about a dozen of whom may vote against their prime minister uh, when the lockdown comes before Parliament today. Several dozen more aren't happy with the restriction, but may toe the line for now. It was interesting. There was this exchange on uh, London Broadcasting Company, a presenter there named Majad Nawaz, who's sort of an anti-Islamist activist, uh, having reformed himself as an Islamist. He's a presenter, but certainly a, a man of the center left. He's a daily a columnist for the Daily Beast. And uh, this uh, conversation he had with a professor named uh, George Scali, who is an advisor to the Boris Johnson government. L- listen, because doesn't this ring familiar with perhaps conversations you've had or you wish would ha- be had in public with the so-called experts that are lording over our freedoms uh, in the context of COVID in America? You've recommended a harsh lockdown, and I'm yeah, wondering if, you, if you've looked at all of the perspect- like the entire picture and compared well, well, it to uh, not doing uh, it and, and decided well, based upon both cases what the best outcome is. So I'm asking well, you whether uh, you've looked at the costs of, not lock- of locking down, how much it costs the country, and you said you want to save lives. I'm asking if you've looked at how many uh, lives will be lost because of lockdown. Well, uh, it is very, very clear, and the evidence is extraordinarily clear, that the countries who bring the virus under control and keep the numbers low... Uh, have the least damage to their economy. The UK has had huge death toll and a huge amount of infection, and it has done enormous damage. So, to what is the co- what is the what and is the cost then? Do, do, what that, is the cost per day for the national lockdown that you're recommending? Uh, I, I, I well, I don't know what the national cost is. Mm. I'm a we and Independent Sage. We provide scientific advice. Yep. And it is for the government and the exchequer to deal with the finance. And they go on like that for several minutes because Mr. Nawaz can't get out of the professor any consideration for trade-offs. That's ultimately his point, which has been the point all along. It's just a remarkable exchange because he very straightforwardly asked for, well, okay, but you're making policy recommendations. I know your expertise is in the area of infectious disease, but don't you present or contemplate or inquire as to the trade-offs, both in terms of lives as well as in terms of money that translates into terms of lives when you're making a recommendation that has implications like lockdowns do, particularly with the excess death data that is coming out in the West, including the CDC in America, that's substantial. And the question about whether lockdowns prevent any excess deaths associated with COVID-19, which is very much in doubt. And you just can't get him to opine on that. All he says is this sort of magical thinking about if we prevent the spread, then it saves more people. And so we need to prevent the spread to save more people. And there's just no addressing these other variables in policymaking. It is the most remarkable thing. For more on this and uh, the culture of safetyism that afflicts the West, we're pleased to be joined again by Heather McDonald, Thomas W. Smith Fellow at the Manhattan Institute, contributing editor at City Journal, author of The Diversity Delusion, How Race and Gender Pandering Corrupt the University and Undermine Our Culture. Heather, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate being on. In your piece in The Spectator, you ask uh, or you you suggest that uh, the outcome of uh, Tuesday's presidential election will will, will determine whether or not uh, the therapeutic culture of the university and safetyism, I guess, as an adjunct to it, will become the dominant force in the American psyche. We, 
we don't know uh, the outcome of the, that uh, election yesterday quite yet, but but certainly the evidence suggests that um, almost regardless of the out, uh, the outcome, that that's becoming the culture in the West as uh, the struggle of a man of the left with a professor to answer a simple question about trade-offs. Well, the other thing that was remarkable about that and that is remarkable, Dan, is that the left, the safetyist blockade block, purports to be following science. That is their main self-righteous calling card is that they are the party of science and those who believe in getting on with our lives, engaging in human activity that makes life meaningful are the yahoos. In fact, virtually every proposition that the lockdowns are based on has been disproven. The schools, schools in many places in the country are still in lockdown. Children are being prevented from learning. There is no transmission in schools. Young people, children are virtually immune from any untoward consequences. There is no reason to prevent children from from learning, and yet schools remain locked down. There is little evidence that your ordinary retail establishment poses any sort of risk. There is little evidence even that restaurants present risk. The, the transmission that's going on now is happening in close indoor quarters where there is little ventilation. The CD, CDC itself claims that you need to be 15 minutes in close contact with somebody to worry about getting infected. There is no scientific basis for outdoor mask wearing, zero. And yet everything that the left is forcing down the throats of Americans throughout the country, primarily in blue states such as Illinois, uh, is completely counterindicated. And yet what we've seen up to yesterday's vote, and as you say, this is, this is going to be a, a, a very clear marker of where we are culturally in this country, uh, is far too passive a tolerance of these rules and far too willing, almost ecstatic an embrace of fear, of passivity and a failure to say this is a country that believes in optimism, risk-taking, moving forward, getting on with our lives. The, 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 one of the most telling indications of where we stand as a culture, at least in the elites, was the outrage that, granted, that, that uh, responded to President Trump's wholly innocuous, wholly uplifting message upon leaving the hospital for his own coronavirus infection that said, we need to move on. We cannot be paralyzed by fear. Uh, I, as a leader, have to move on. That message, which was uncontroversial in the mouth of FDR, who said the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, is now viewed as disqualifying in a leader. This is a remarkable sea change in American culture. Right. The only thing we have to fear is not being afraid uh, is the, uh, the 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 21st century version of that, it would appear. Um, but but I guess the question is, um, re- whether it's Biden or whether it's Trump, do you see America becoming um, uh, bifurcated? There are going to be free states and there are going to be covid states. Yes, it is. It is bifurcated right now. One of the really uh, eye opening, astounding aspects of this pandemic was this is a new experience uh, with this degree of, of hysteria and media attention to it in America. And it, the reactions did follow pretty clearly 
the red state, blue state division. So we've learned that not only are we divided over whether there are such things as males and females by biological uh, necessity and birth, not only are we divided over whether we should embrace colorblindness, not only are we divided over the specious idea that Americans are defined by white supremacy, whereas in fact they're the most well-meaning, open-hearted people on the planet, but we're also divided uh, by whether we should take Dr. Fauci as our political leader. If Fauci was standing you know, at, at the borders of, of, of Britain, at the edge of the Atlantic, and, and ruling their leaders, they, w- they would have said to those pilgrims, don't get on those boats, it's too dangerous, you'll risk yourself. You know, if, if Fauci was saying to Lewis and Clark, making his own uh, pronouncements, he would say, do not explore this continent, there is risk. I'm sorry, there is risk in all human activity. It is the mark of civilization to see something larger than one particular type of risk and to move forward. We would not have gone to the moon. We had no idea what would have happened uh, when, when those astronauts stepped out onto the moon's surface. We did it because we were courageous, because we believed in pushing the boundaries of knowledge and human experience. Those sorts of risk-taking enterprises, if safetyism continues to take over our culture, will be completely ended. Uh, When we come back with Heather McDonald, the author of The Diversity Delusion, How Race and Gender Pandering Corrupt the University and Undermine Our Culture, I want to talk about the university and our culture, these things that transcend the outcome of uh, Tuesday's election, whenever it may be decided. More with Heather McDonald right after this. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Uh, Interesting op-ed in the Wall Street Journal from uh, a professor named John Ellis. He is a professor emeritus of German literature at the University of California, Santa Cruz. He uh, writes of the university and where it has led American culture. He talks about it what once was. America's universities were once the leading edge of an advanced culture, reinforcing and expanding the, the, expanding the country's best features. They welcomed eccentric opinions, uh, expanded the boundaries of thought and learning. None of that persists today. Far from being the leading edge of an advanced culture, the universities drag America back toward a more primitive state. They have contempt for the restraints, restraints and rules that define society such as political neutrality and non-political institutions. For radicals, politics takes precedence over everything, and every field within social science and the humanities eventually degrades into a mere channel to spread progressive orthodoxies. He uh, continues, in an advanced society, journalists have the vital job of keeping the citizenry well-informed so that the government can be held into account. Only in less developed cultures is the press commonly under firm political control, but since America's university journalism programs are now overwhelmingly left activists, we're not, we now effectively have the politicized press of an underdeveloped nation. Uh, he is essentially suggests that uh, while universities were key to maintaining American culture, they now undermine it and sicken it, and we need to decide in the coming days and months and years how to cut them off. For more on uh, that commentary, reaction to it, please to be rejoined by Heather McDonald, the Thomas W. Smith Fellow at the Manhattan Institute, contributing editor at City Journal, and author of The Diversity Delusion, How Race and Gender Pandering Corrupt the University 
and undermine our culture. Heather, if uh, President Trump were to win a second term, what, what should he do, if anything, quote unquote, cut the university off to stop these universities from undermining and sickening our culture, as Mr. Ellis puts it? He should not give them federal money to the extent that they are determined to treat individuals on the basis of the trivialities of race and gender. He should end within the own federal government, uh, the National Science Foundation and the National Institutes of Health themselves dole out grants for basic scientific research based on race and gender, which is a complete betrayal of their mission, which was to push the boundaries of knowledge to fund basic scientific research. Their mission is not to engage in identity politics, and yet those federal agencies are doling out hundreds of millions of dollars to fight phantom heteronormativity and microaggressions in engineering and math. Unfortunately, you know, the Trump administration, it was only in the last couple months that it really got up to speed in fighting back against this. One of its most brilliant moves was to open a discrimination investigation against Princeton University. Princeton was one of thousands of schools that over the summer put out these self-righteous chest-beating declarations declaring themselves racist as well as the rest of the country, a proposition that is completely ludicrous because Princeton, like every other college, uses massive racial preferences in favor of blacks and Hispanics in both admissions and faculty hiring. They have vast bureaucracies dedicated to helping blacks and Hispanics survive their own alleged racism. And the Trump administration said, oh, really? So you're saying that you have this systemic racism problem. In that case, we're not going to give you any more money because you're violating basic civil rights statutes. That was a brilliant move. The only qualm or quibble I would have with it is that Princeton is no different than any other school. They had to start somewhere. But you could basically cut out the entirety of federal funding of admissions of, of colleges if you just read the statements that came pouring out like a geyser from universities over the summer declaring themselves racist. And Trump should continue speaking about the fact that we are not a nation of bigots. It is a fantasy on the part of the elites who know nothing about mainstream America, who hate it, who hate the country, who are insulated from competitive pressure, even as they act themselves like the most greedy, grasping capitalists, trying to get as many warm butts in their sit-on-college seats, regardless of whether those students are actually capable of engaging in true academic work. They want the students enrolled, they get their deposits, and then if those students drop out, who cares? We also need to fight back against this idea that the only way to lead a meaningful, productive life is a college degree. That is absurd. There are lots of people who want to work with their hands, who want to explore machines, who want to be in professions that do not require sitting in some cubicle doing marketing. And we should be more in favor of people skipping college entirely and following their passion to work with things rather than to be the bearer of poisonous identity politics. Uh, one uh, green shoot uh, on this score uh, occurred yesterday, and that's the uh, California ballot initiative that would have brought back race-based admissions policies that was uh, prohibited under a previous proposition. And the results here as to the question about bringing back so-called affirmative action, but it's much more aggressive than that. It was uh, uh, sanctioned discrimination in admissions 
of uh, a particularly pernicious sort like we see actually practiced by the Ivy League, uh, for example, artificially lowering the character scores of Asian-Americans to keep uh, from having to admit more Asian-Americans. I mean, really nasty stuff. But uh, in California, right now, the results I see, that uh, measure to bring back those sort of race-based policies failed in California. Boy, in, in cuckoo California, if it fails, maybe... Maybe the message is getting through to some people. It's remarkable, Dan. I have to say, I assume that Proposition 16, which would return California to a system of overt racial preferences in government contracting, in admissions, I assumed, frankly, it was a shoe-in because of this summer and fall's outcry on the part of at least elite establishments against America's so-called systemic racism. Again, I cannot stress enough that that claim is false false. But if Californians are sticking to their expressed intention in 1996 when they put into the Constitution a completely innocuous statement saying that California shall not discriminate or give preferences to uh, discriminate on the basis of race, gender, and sex, or give preferences on the basis of race and sex, that proposition remains firm. Uh, and it turns out that Americans still have a deep-seated belief in what our founding ideals were, which is equality of treatment. Now, admittedly, we, we do not, did not always live up to those ideals. It was a shameful history in this country's part, uh, a blindness that is hard to understand now. But that history is behind us. It is behind us. Nobody that knows how mainstream institutions in this country work can possibly maintain that we are systemically discriminating against underrepresented minorities. The opposite is the case. Every bank, every corporation, every law firm, every foundation, every symphony, every museum, every college, it's not just the Ivies. It is every single selective college, public and private in this country, are favoring blacks and Hispanics over whites and Asians. So Americans still believe that we should be moving towards equal treatment uh, and not, not returning to a system of what has become in many institutions official segregation. She is Heather McDonald, the Thomas W. Fellow at the Manhattan Institute, contributing editor, City Journal, author of The Diversity Delusion, How Race and Gender Pandering Corrupt the University and Undermine Our Culture. Heather, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Dan. I love talking to you. Take care. Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Uh, President Trump's uh, righteous Norman Vincent Peale came out in his early morning speech about uh, the election returns this morning. So we'll be going to the U.S. Supreme Court. We want all voting to stop. We don't want them to find any ballots at 4 o'clock in the morning and add them to the list. Okay? It's, it's a very sad, it's a very sad moment. To me, this is a very sad moment. And 
we will win this. And we, as far as I'm concerned, we already have won it. So I just want to thank you. And I think when he said we already have, I, I don't think he meant in a metaphysical sense. I don't think he meant uh, we've won this on other planes than electorally. I think he's speaking very much in the moment. For more on this, uh, as well as a bit of a conversation on big tech, pleased to be joined by Matthew Schmitz. He is the senior editor at First Things, firstthings.com, columnist for the Catholic Herald as well. Matthew, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Dan, thanks for having me. Uh, you wrote a good piece uh, for the spectator.us um, about staying positive, uh, Trump's and, and Trump's uh, Norman Vincent Peale uh, 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 affinity, um, who he had a, a, a personal relationship with before Norman Vincent Peale passed on. And uh, it, part of it is in the context of COVID and his pronouncements about learning to live with the virus. We can't live in our basements and so on and so forth. But part of it is just more generally speaking. And um, I thought your review of how you received his uh, positivism in uh, 2016 versus what you've come to think about it now was really interesting. So I wanted you to discuss that. Right. So Norman Vincent Peale, best known for his book, The Power of Positive Thinking, uh, hugely influential pastor. And I think, uh, you know, it's just you know, a quick and dirty way of putting it would be that, you know, he took kind of classic um, uh, conservative Protestant Christianity and helped express it more in the terms of uh, you know, kind of self-help and life advice. And that, that had a very broad appeal. And, you know, as you mentioned, I, I, had, a, I had a different, darker view of this in 2016. Uh, and, and that's for a couple of reasons. One. There are certain places you can point to where Norman Vincent Peale, uh, you know, maybe deviates a little bit from at least, at least some understandings of classic Christianity. And then two, I think with Norman Vincent Peale's brain of Christianity, where it's, there's a strong uh, stress on how believing in God, uh, believing in country, and believing in yourself will bring you worldly success. When you have that stress, I think sometimes if you don't enjoy that worldly success, if you experience a little failure, you can wonder, well, maybe God doesn't hasn't blessed me or God isn't close to me. Long story short, you know, I, in 2016, I was skeptical of Trump. I certainly didn't favor Clinton. I would never, ever uh, support a candidate who's pro-abortion. But I, I was very skeptical of Trump, and I, I came to realize over the last four years that a lot of that skepticism was exaggerated. I think Trump's been very strong on life. And he's fought on a lot of other issues, too. And uh, I guess we'll see where where this kind of strange, ongoing election count takes us. That's right. And you uh, write just about that, uh, sort of rounding out this uh, this topic. There's one thing American people know about Donald Trump. He, like them, is unequivocally pro-American. About the spokesman for American liberalism, they feel they know no such thing, and with some justification. It always has been easy and sometimes necessary to criticize Trump, but the question remains— Compared to what? Um, the point you're driving at with respect to uh, the spokesman for American liberalism. Right. Well, what I had in mind there was what uh, Irving Kristol, the great neoconservative thinker, said about Senator McCarthy uh, decades ago. Because there was a lot of outrage at Senator McCarthy. He was, you know, with his anti communist uh, crusade. You know, he was vulgar. He was going too far. You know, he, he was wrong about certain discrete things, and a lot of his critics were in the establishment were saying that. And what Crystal said, who was very, and really very much a part of that establishment, very much a part of this New York intellectual world, he said, you know, the thing about Senator McCarthy is that people know he's 100% anti-communist, and they really can't say that about any of you. 
And that's why the American people do favor uh, Senator McCarthy. I think that has been the basic source of Trump's appeal. And you see that doesn't just appeal to one race. It looks like Trump has, whatever the outcome of the election is, when all the votes are counted, hopefully fully and fairly, whatever the outcome is, it looks like he's improved his numbers among blacks. He's improved his numbers among Latinos. Despite all of this talk about how he's racially uh, divisive and polarizing, uh, it seems that a lot of uh, maybe white liberals convinced themselves that that was true, but that a, a lot of minority voters really didn't feel the same way. Uh, when we come back with uh, Matthew Schmitz, I want to talk about uh, another piece that you wrote, this uh, focusing in on big tech and censorship and uh, making the case that uh, actually big tech's uh, censorship is worse than censorship at the government's hands. Uh, that's an interesting statement to make, giving, uh, given the fact that it's government that has a monopoly of force. So normally one would think that that is a more dangerous power uh, in the hands of the government. But we'll get Matthew Schmitz's view, senior editor at First Things, columnist for the Catholic Herald, right after this. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're speaking with Matthew Schmitz. He's a senior editor at First Things and columnist for the Catholic Herald. And uh, your piece in the New York Post about uh, big tech, and boy, this couldn't be more timely. Uh, last uh, night, well, into this morning, when Trump uh, suggested, uh, telegraphed that he would speak to the nation as he did, so he essentially accused um, his opponents of uh, trying to rig or actually rigging the election against him. He made a reference to stealing the election as his leads in some of these swing states disappeared. And uh, that was flagged by Twitter. And uh, Matthew, you uh, argue in your piece that the uh, censorship by platforms like Twitter and Facebook is actually more dangerous uh, to a free society, more of a threat to a free society than censorship by government. And and, uh, as I uh, telegraphed before the break, one would think, well, wait a second, government has a monopoly of force in society. It's, it's government restraint that is enshrined in the Constitution, not uh, business restraint or commercial restraint. So how do you make the case that uh, Twitter and Facebook and Google present more of a threat? Well, Dan, I'd, I'd put it this way. You know, we have a long tradition in America of recognizing that you know, monopolies can be formed where really a free market is no longer operating, but one actor uh, is able to just dominate the field. And then uh, you you see as well in, in our current tech situation that it's not just a perfectly a perfect free-for-all. These companies have actually been given special privileges, special carve-outs from liability under federal law. So they're, uh, they're given special privileges, Twitter and Facebook, that other media companies, say like the New York Post, simply don't uh, enjoy to the same degree. Now, by, in terms of how uh, private censorship can be worse than government censorship, I put it this way: you, if you look, you know, a hundred years ago, where there were regulations on uh, information on, you know, birth control, say that could be sent through the mail, as oppressive as people might find that, because those regulations were enacted by our publicly elected representatives and their agents. The American people had a very direct say in shaping those regulations and also could uh, move to revoke them. 
when it's a private company that's imposing these regulations where there's no transparency, where there's no uh, public legitimacy, where it's being done not because of a vote on the part of the American people or their duly elected representatives, but because of the private decision of a Silicon Valley overlord, I mean, that's that's more disturbing. That's actually less free because you, the American people don't have a direct say. And then you know, Jack Dorsey, CEO of Twitter, he's called before Congress recently. And this this is a guy who is, uh, he just gave millions of, and millions of dollars to Ibram X. Kendi, the intellectual of Black Lives Matter, right. who has a, 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 a vision that's very, very counter to the... Uh, vision embodied in the American Constitution of Equality before the law. It's, it's a racialist vision that will uh, re-erect a racial hierarchy, but flip it the other way. And and then you know, Dorsey himself, I'm not sure if this is the guy we want governing us. He looks strung out on drugs. He's... <laughs> Uh, I mean, yeah. uh, it's, yeah, not, it's no. not necessarily the person you want running, making decisions about what the how the president of the United States can communicate with the American people. So, and we we have to think in, about how we can preserve the liberties we value, and the form of freedom we value, even if that requires um, new approaches. But but the, the, does that uh, so so? Let let me ask. Let me uh, just push back against this a bit more and say so. If uh, Twitter and Facebook uh, adopted the uh, the Miller test uh, from the Miller v. California case uh, as to community standards when it comes to uh, uh, to, to content, essentially, uh, with, with, with as the basis for uh, regulating content on their platform, so sort of uh, folding in with the standards set forth by the Supreme Court interpreting the Constitution, would that be satisfactory or um or or something else still would be required of them to um, allay some of the fears that would uh, would justify the sort of government intervention you're suggesting right i i think that uh i think that could work i think that what's really needed there there are one of two ways this could go with the companies one they could simply permit more speech um and make it more of a free for all um, and I would be happy with that. Or two, uh, they could respond to a change in regulation by uh, re- restricting speech more tightly. And I would also be happy with that because I think it would uh, remove this idea that they are really um, neutral platforms, that they are really free platforms. And if it is made clear uh, how biased they are, if they um, if they have to move more aggressively to restrain uh, speech. I think it'll cut into their profit margins. I think it will reduce their public appeal, and it will lessen uh, their market share and their uh, broad public prestige. And I think those are good things. Why? Because people can disagree. I don't think Twitter and Facebook are good for this country. Yeah, but no, I understand, and, and that's a, a fair position to take. But I mean, what you're describing happening is sort of the market feedback is is what uh, happens uh, spontaneously in, in a in a marketplace, and and so that may be happening. I would argue to some extent that is happening right now with these high-profile cases of censoring a presidential tweet and and uh, mm-hmm. shutting down the New York Post's uh, Twitter account because of their stories on Hunter Biden. So why not let that play out uh, rather than uh, get the federal government involved? Right. So the I, yeah, I, I fully agree. I mean, really, really, we're talking about something that's um, more about giving giving things a shove rather than probably changing their direction. But 
You're right now with the uh, special carve out they enjoy under Section 230. Um, you know that be, because they have that in, in that sense, the federal government is already involved. There's already a, um, a special regular regulatory treatment they receive, and so one possibility is simply to remove that exemption from them, and then once that exemption is removed, the the market will respond accordingly. They'll they'll respond accordingly, and they'll. Uh, operate under American law, just as anyone else does. Say, if uh, you know, my my magazine puts out something, you know, we can be, you know, we're liable for what we publish in a way that Twitter is not liable for what it publishes. And so, yeah, then then the only thing that will really be kicking in there, you know, is those market mechanisms and uh, the accountability that everyone faces under American law. He is Matthew Schmidt, senior editor at First Things, FirstThings.com, columnist for the Catholic Herald as well. Matthew Schmitz, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Dan, thanks so much. Take care. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. Um, picking up on what we were discussing in part with Heather McDonald earlier in the hour, this uh, commentary from a uh, New York City psychologist named uh, Andrew Hartz, who's also a member of Heterodox Academy, the uh, academy founded by uh, some dissident academics, including those of the center-left, uh, most notably Jonathan Haidt. Diagnosis for American Polarization, in which he recounts a, a, a session with a college student providing psychotherapy to a depressed college student. He writes, our first sessions focused on her depression, but my patient, a white woman, took frequent detours into racial politics. She loved Malcolm X and rallied against white privilege. Then she told me she identified as black. She said she felt black on the inside because she, quote unquote, got it and wasn't ignorant or hateful. Everything she said about black people was positive, even idealizing. They were always blameless, strong victims. By contrast, everything she said about white people was aggressively critical and shaming. They were ignorant, oppressors, fragile, selfish, guilty. One had no power, the other had all of it. This led me to believe that she felt black because whiteness for her was intolerably negative, whereas blackness was appealing. I was unsure how to respond. I asked her if she felt anything positive about her white identity. If I asked her that, he writes, I, that question could have provoked her. Besides, I couldn't think of anything positive about white people that didn't sound racist even to my own ears. Nor could I think of a single shortcoming in another ethnic group that didn't sound racist. Right. Well, the problem he's running into there is he's categorizing people by racial group rather than by individuals according to their behavior. Anyway, he was struggled to figure out how to help her, and he didn't really come to the realization until after she was out of his care. He uh, talks about splitting the diagnosis for the American polarization, which is rooted in identitarianism. Splitting is a defense mechanism by which people unconsciously frame ideas, individuals or groups of people, in all or nothing terms, all good or all bad. Uh, he uh, essentially concludes, you know, encouraging non-split dialogue could make the world a more enlightened place. It might even cure our disorder. Yeah, and the non-split dialogue here, without getting into too much additional psychobabble, is pretty simple. I mean, uh, you know, it sort of starts from a baseline rooted in Christianity, right? We're all sinners. We all possess attributes and we all have shortcomings. And uh, those things uh, manifest themselves in different ways at different times. But the point is to say, yes, uh, people are inherently sinful, but they have the capacity for good. And also a focus on something you can identify as a shortcoming or a bad 
and suggest that that's all they are. That is the sum total of them. It's just, I, you know, I, I think the polarization thing, I mean, it's, it's interesting to put a uh, psychological construct on it, but it just really isn't that complicated. Uh, you know, all things are fairly simple if you take that um, worldview that I'm describing, which is just something that I learned through my faith. It doesn't have to be necessarily attributed to faith, but because re- really, I mean, it's just commonsensical. You, you know this from how you interact with people who you otherwise like when you have a disagreement. So I guess what you need to do is apply that more globally, what you otherwise know to be true. And for those that uh, cannot engage constructively, hey, look, you know, there's no demand that you suffer fools interminably. You give people a chance if they decide that there's just no interest in taking advantage of that chance, that opportunity to be constructive, then it's also okay to move on. This is Dan Prof. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Follow us at danproftshow.com on social media at Dan Proft Show or at Dan Proft. Podcasts on Spotify and iTunes uh, at danproftshow.com. Resetting here, updating as uh, our discussion right now. Joe Biden has extended his lead in Michigan with 96% of expected total vote reporting. He is now up approximately 46,000 votes, almost a full percentage point, 49.7 to 48.8. Uh, the other states essentially holding serve. We discussed earlier in the program with Andy Kroll, Las Vegas Journal Review, reporting this morning that um, no update on the Nevada vote until Thursday, until tomorrow. So no declaration, at least until then, because if, again, Trump holds his leads in Georgia, North Carolina and Pennsylvania, if he wins Nevada or Wisconsin or Michigan or Arizona, then he wins the presidency. He wins reelection. And so Nevada is very much germane to the discussion. And right now. With just two-thirds of the vote reporting in Nevada, President Trump is only down six-tenths of a point, only 8,000 votes. And again, the combination of the perception, at least, and some of the numbers, particularly in Florida, to back it up, that uh, President Trump improved his vote from the Latino community, combined with the uh, just general nature of lockdowns that Joe Biden is obviously much more open to than is President Trump, and how that is crippling Las Vegas and Nevada's hospitality industry suggests that maybe there is a revolt afoot in Nevada that could put Nevada in Trump's column. It's a maybe. We'll see. It's certainly in play, and it's certainly worth playing itself out. One other thing with respect to Arizona, even though Trump is down about uh, 93,000 votes in Arizona. He's down about uh, three and a half points. That's only 84% reporting. And again, the governor there, Doug Ducey, saying late last night, hey, 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 too early to call. We want to count uh, all of the absentee ballots. The belief, at least that I heard from the campaign, was that absentee ballots were coming in about two to one for Trump. And that if uh, among the approximately half a million absentee ballots to be counted, if Trump wins that universe of votes, uh, 60-40 round numbers, then he still wins Arizona by about 30,000 votes, which is what the campaign anticipated going in. And they're still hopeful as possible. 
if not likely. So 84 percent. I mean, compare that, by the way. So he's 84 percent voting in reporting in Arizona. And it's that spread about a 93,000 vote spread about, as I said, three and a half percent. I mean, compare that to Georgia, which we're not calling. That's about a two point spread for Trump and about uh, a 86,000 vote margin. It was a 102,000 vote margin at the start of the day. So, yeah, you can understand why there is a, a whole hold on a second approach to Arizona by both the governor as well as the Trump campaign. In addition to that, I understand from the campaign that they're looking at Wisconsin and Michigan for particular election irregularities, um, most specifically in the area of ballot harvesting, illicit ballot harvesting. Now, again, you can't just say they stole it without providing evidence of wrongdoing if you want to challenge the results. This is why there are recount provisions and there's access to the courts and so on and so forth. So this is an opportunity for the Trump campaign to perhaps put a a marker down for the kind of ballot irregularities, election irregularities, ballot integrity questions that routinely come up in particular jurisdictions, your Philadelphia's, your Chicago's, your Detroit's, your Milwaukee counties in Wisconsin. As Michigan has, as Biden has extended his lead in Michigan to, as I said, about 46,000 votes with 96% reporting, Wisconsin remains stagnant as of some additional reporting this morning, 95 percent of expected total vote vote reporting. And Trump is down about 21,000 votes, and which is only seven tenths of a percent. And he, uh, as we talked about this morning uh, earlier on the show uh, about what was happening this morning, is was waiting for votes to come in from some areas where he expects to be picking up votes. How many is an open question. But uh, anyway, it's worth, you know, uh, holding serve on this until you get a full handle on it while you dispatch the lawyers, guns and money to these particular locales. So, you know, that that's where things stand. And we just sort of want to get a handle on it as we go into tomorrow with at least Nevada pending. Certainly, we know Pennsylvania will be pending. As uh, they're just restarting their count and have somewhere between 800,000 and a million ballots to go through, uh, not expected to finish that count before the end of the week, according to most of the reporting I've seen. So that's where things stand. And, um, boy, the reckoning, thinking about this, the opportunities here. So many fronts, so many fronts. Do you want this to just be sort of a blip, an anomaly, uh, an opportunity that won't be consummated for a second term? What was begun will not be finished. When it comes to so many institutions, so many bad actors that were exposed. I saw something yesterday. Jim Comey, did you see the picture Jim Comey tweeted? Just remarkable, really. I mean, it's just so disgusting. The smugness, you know, the the, uh, bank robber who sends you a, a picture of your money with a smile. That's sort of what the Jim Comey picture was. Jim Comey pictured... At his home, uh, with the caption, vote for your country, he is in a Biden-Harris 2020 T-shirt with a Biden-Harris mug, coffee mug, drinking a cup of coffee with a smirk on his face that I'd like to wipe off of his face. Nonpartisan prosecutor and nonpartisan law enforcement official who just made some honest, innocent mistakes, right? That's what we're supposed to believe about Jim Comey. What a tragedy it will be. 
if there is not a reckoning for the Jim Comey-led FBI, the senior leadership that surrounded him and included him. What a tragedy it will be if the Durham report is a ship that will never find a port, even if uh, Trump is, uh, assuming that Trump uh, would lose, and even with the two months between the election and uh, the transition of power on January 20th. I mean, you just see this all over, and it's, um, you know, it's depressing, the Jim Comey's. Depressing at every level. You see people making our country less safe, making our country more divided, making our country less free, and engendering just enough hatred and just enough fear to accentuate their power. And uh, just since she became a national and international figure, uh, as depressing as uh, Jim Comey and that phony baloney Mr. Smith goes to Washington routine he does is Kim Fox, the state's attorney, George Soros funded state's attorney again in Cook County. She of the Jesse Smollett non-prosecution, she of the non-prosecution culture, just like Larry Krasner in Philadelphia and Marilyn Mosby in Baltimore and so many others. Her victory speech yesterday. The last four years have not been a cakewalk. I came in and proposed a vision for this office that believed that we had to see the people who used our systems, victims and defendants, and told the unseemly truth that sometimes our defendants were victims and our victims defendants. That I had to tell the story that we are inextricably linked in this city, even when we don't want to talk about it. That when there's crime and violence on the south and west sides, it should impact and feel just as painful for everyone else in neighborhoods outside of that. That we are not our best city when there are neighborhoods where children cannot go out to play. We are not our best city when our elders can't plant their gardens without fear of being shot. And... uh... Ms. Fox, who is it that presides over that best city, Chicago, that is? Lori Lightfoot. 3,600 people shot in Chicago this year, 675 dead. And you have a prosecutor who is not a prosecutor, doesn't want to be, doesn't want to prosecute. This is happening all over the country. These cities have become more violent. And interestingly, it's people like Heather McDonald, who we spoke to earlier in the show, who's writing columns like drive-by homicides, don't these Black Lives Matter, too, talking about all the young black men, kids, that have been murdered in the crossfire in places like Chicago, while Kim Fox and mayors and prosecutors funded by George Soros around the country appease the mob, have turned the streets over to the mob, have boarded up, <laughs> boarded up their cities in advance of yesterday's election. And what are we told about them, about these individuals? They're the party of decency. Wasn't that one of the uh, catchwords of the Biden campaign sloganeering? Decency? As uh, one uh, observer tweeted, remember that decency is on the ballot. Also remember to board up your stores in case the party of decency doesn't get their way. Don't you forget about me. Don't, 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 don't you. 
exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. For more on uh, everything that has transpired and will, we're pleased to be joined by John Hendraker, president of the Center of the American Experiment, founder of PowerlineBlog.com, a must-read blog. John, thanks for joining us. So why did you not deliver Minnesota for President Trump? <laughs> you know, I'm disappointed. A Republican has not won any statewide race since 2006, and the last Republican presidential nominee to carry Minnesota was Richard Nixon in 1972. So it's not an upset. When a Democrat carries Minnesota, I had my fingers crossed, thought we had a chance, but it uh, didn't happen. Yeah. Your uh, reaction to President Trump uh, this morning, early this morning, saying that uh, he's confused about what happened to this election that he was watching. They stopped counting. He's talking about Pennsylvania. They frauded the American public. He's mainly talking about Pennsylvania. We're going to take them to the Supreme Court. He's still talking about Pennsylvania. What do you say in reaction to the president's reaction? Well, one, I think he's going to win Pennsylvania, and unless all of the ballots that remain to be counted are early voting ballots, which could be true, and unless they go super heavily for Biden, I mean, he's got a huge lead in Pennsylvania. But obviously what he's talking about is the lawless action by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, which just unilaterally and arbitrarily extended the election by three days and said, oh, yeah, count all the ballots that come in within three days after Election Day. And what that does is it gives the Democrats to look at the counts when the ballots have been cast, the real ballots, and figure out how many more they need and try to go out and get them in those three days. So Trump is right to be angry about that. And if the case ever gets to the U.S. Supreme Court, it did get to the Supreme Court and they held off ruling on it, hoping it wouldn't be necessary. But if that case ever gets to the Supreme Court, I think Trump very likely wins it. And, you know, uh, just taking a step back here, um, I go back to the uh, ABC News Washington Post poll from uh, October 28th. So, you know, four days before the election, Biden leads Trump by 17 points in Wisconsin. You know, I hope this is remembered and the credibility, whatever is left of it, among at least half the country of organizations like ABC News and Washington and the Washington Post uh, goes to nil. Dan, the entire establishment has had their thumb on the scale for four years trying to bring down Donald Trump. I think the pollsters, it's just part of the same old story. I, I, I don't think that they're so inept that they can't get within 15 points of the right result. You know, I, I think what a lot of them do is they, they set up their turnout model in such a way as to magnify Biden votes. And then the, and most of them, not all, as you point out, but most of them, the last week before the election, all of a sudden the race tightens. You know, so it's within the margin of error. And they say, oh, Trump is catching up. Well, he may, in fact, be catching up. But I suspect that what's going on is that they are tweaking those turnout models to make them more realistic. And I think they do that to help Democratic Party fundraising and to demoralize Republicans. I mean, that's that's exactly what's happening. You just you just wonder then how this how you go forward in this environment, whether it's President Trump or whether it's President Biden. You just wonder where this goes. The acrimony will continue. The mistrust will grow. People will either become more confrontational or the drop out altogether. It just uh, I don't know. I, I don't mean to be fatalistic, but it just doesn't portend well for the republic. Well, it certainly doesn't to have a president who's barely functional. I mean, I don't think Joe Biden is capable of discharging the duties of the office, you know, let alone discharging them well. 
And that's going to be a really interesting thing to watch play out. Are the Democrats going to try to replace him under the 25th Amendment or some such scheme? You know, will he even survive for four years? I don't know. The good news, Dan, is the Republicans have held the Senate. So we have that bulwark. Uh, you know, the real nightmare scenario is uh, Biden wins and the Democrats take the Senate and they uh, do away with the filibuster. They admit Puerto Rico and D.C. as states. Uh, they pack the Supreme Court. They legalize 12 million illegal immigrants. All of those things are on the agenda if they had captured the Senate. What do you uh, see as um, the future for the Republican Party? I mean, let's just play out worst case scenario that uh, Joe Biden is elected. What does the Republican Party do other than immediately the scramble begins for 2024? But what do they do in terms of reflecting on the last four years and Trump's remarkable performance, including uh, in 2020, even in defeat, if it is if that's what comes to pass? Yeah, right. There's been a lot of talk about Trumpism without Trump. You know, who are the standard bearers? I think what Trump did more than anything else was to cement the Republican Party's position as the party of uh, the middle class and the working man and, and the party that that it puts America first, you know, not the global elites. I think that's going to be his lasting contribution. I think whoever the nominee is in four years, and we've got some, I think, excellent candidates for that role, they're not going to lose that lesson. I mean, they are going to pick up the banner uh, that that, uh, President Trump has raised high. And I think Trump is going to be, um, you know, he's not going away. And I think he'll be, you know, enthusiastically endorsing and campaigning for his successor in 2024. So, you know, every president to some degree creates his own coalition. Uh, You know, the winning presidential coalition is never exactly the same. And you can't fully have Trumpism without Trump. You know what I mean? Because his personality was part of his appeal to a lot of voters, the fact that he wasn't a politician. But that said, you know, the key elements of his of his policies can be carried forward. And I'm confident that they will be. Interesting. You don't think that he'll shy away from the limelight if he's defeated. Shocking. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, uh, So, uh, again, just playing out this scenario, because I think it's just it's just an interesting uh, uh, think thought exercise. COVID-19. If uh, if president if it's president elect Biden by week's end or whenever, then uh, where are we going with COVID-19 following uh, Boris Johnson and Emmanuel Macron? I think so. You know, there's there's some uh, kind of cynical expectation that once the election is over, the Democrats will say, well, never mind. COVID-19 has served its purpose. Let's get back to business. I don't think that's going to happen. I think at some level they're true believers. And uh, I know here in Minnesota there are rumors that our governor was just waiting until after the election to order a really draconian shutdown sometime in the next week or 10 days. And, you know, Biden has talked about a national shutdown, which he does not have the constitutional authority to to order, as far as I know, right? (laughs) You know, the police powers are with the states. But I I think they're pretty serious about that. And I I think the consequences could be pretty drastic. Are you concerned at all? I mean, just, again, thinking about how much the left was able to advance their cultural agenda in the last four years without the White House and without the Senate that you're really going to see the sort of confrontation that leads to violence uh, because of the desire to exact punishment on anybody who would dare support Trump, whether it's and and by the way, just uh, getting you fired from your job or ostracized on via social media isn't enough. Well, yeah, I I think we're going to see a lot more of that kind of thing. I I think that even this kind of squeaky uh, Biden victory is going to be seen, seen by all those people as vindication. 
I think that Antifa is the militant arm of the Democratic Party, much like the Ku Klux Klan was 100 years plus ago. And um, and I think that a Biden administration is going to smile very benignly on, on Antifa BLM rioters. Uh, and I think that we're going to see more of, you know, cancel culture and the, the, the insanity of the universities and all that kind of stuff. And I, and I think the question becomes, you know, most Americans haven't really felt that stuff yet. You know, this is something you, you hear about if you're on Twitter and so on. And I mean, or if you're a college student, but I mean, most Americans, it hasn't really impinged on them. And, and my, my hope is that as more people really become aware of how, how awful this stuff is and how serious the Democrats are about socialism and really hating America, uh, you know, I'm hoping for a major reaction against that in 2024. He is John Hendraker, president of the Center of the American Experiment, uh, founder of PowerlineBlog.com. John, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thank you guys. Bye-bye. Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. For more on what has transpired so far and what still may, we're pleased to be joined by Rich Lowry, editor of National Review, Fox News contributor, and author of The Case for Nationalism, How It Made Us Powerful, United, and Free. Rich, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. So The Case for Nationalism, that's your book. Uh, you may have only about four days to continue to make it before this is prohibited. Uh, so you, you better make it. <laughs> yeah. So, look, th- this Trump turned out the vote. Uh, you know, I, I didn't discount he could do this because um, after 2016, I, I adopted a posture of modesty and suspicion <laughs> of the polls going forward. But even I was a little skeptical. I was talking to a top Trump guy, I think it was like two or three weeks ago, pretty much near the, the trough. You know, I mean, the national polls coming out, I think that had him down double digits. And, and this guy said, oh, we just got off the phone with all, all our team and, and all the key states, and they all say they feel better than, than they did in 2016. I was like, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, tell me another one. But there was a lot to that. And this is, this is an amazing achievement to get this close. Now, the question is, can he, can he get over the top and their paths? Um, but I think you probably have to favor Biden slightly uh, where we are r- right at the moment. Um, but but th- this thing is going to ha- hang on really narrow results in a couple of states, obviously. Uh, think how far the left has advanced their cultural agenda in the last four years without the White House and without the Senate. Now, maybe, you know, if they have the White House as is a possibility uh, how much more they w- and, and a caretaker as that, as you describe, beholden to the Marxist uh, base of that party. Think how far they could advance that agenda just with executive orders. Yeah, well, clearly in this scenario, Biden would go further than Obama, go further than Trump in governing unilaterally and probably won't be a peep from his side. You right. know, that there wasn't when Obama rewrote uh, immigration law unilaterally, so they'd, they'd all accept it. But there are, on that, there are limits. And but, but clearly, that this cultural factor was a huge subterranean issue in the election. Subterranean, not for people like us who are aware of it, but subterranean and the rest of the coverage. 
this was clearly there was a, a silent majority or silent plurality out there that was um, keeping their heads down because this is a time when you, know, you say the wrong thing in Facebook, you can get fired from your job and was just waiting to, to give the one symbol and expression of defiance that they could. And that was voting for Donald Trump. And that, that's that's another reason I think he he exceeded what what people think he could do in terms of turning out his vote. Yeah, it, it, the binary I suggested was the utopians uh, versus the uh, versus Václav Havel's green grocers. So there, whether the re- revolt of the green grocers was big enough, we're, we're, we're yet to see. But but clearly that was a part of it. Clearly, this is something that is afoot as more and more people run into the sort of um, uh, oppressive culture that uh, the left uh, seeks to advance. And it, it is advancing. Yeah, and it's also a sign that Trump's going to have staying power. You know, the, the the worst case scenario for him was a big landslide loss. You know, and the Senate's washed out, and and Democrats make generational policy advances in the wake of his uh, embarrassing defeat, and that, and that didn't happen. And it, it's clear that some version of Trump's path is the path for the Republican Party going forward. Now, you d- you don't want to be as uh, uh, a radioactive in the suburbs as, as Trump made himself. That's obviously something that the party has to deal with going forward. But, you know, I always thought Trump loses. And if he's one term president, we'll never see him at a Republican convention. I don't think that's true uh, uh, anymore. And again, we, we I, I shouldn't. I'm speaking as though he's going to lose. We don't know yeah, that right. at all. No, right. No, we're just playing on hypotheticals. That's right. I think we gave the proper predicate that it's a f- coin flip or something approximating that right now. But it's interesting you say that because uh, you know, I mean, there there are a, a, a few never Trumpers that write over at your publication, National Review, and and if Trump were to lose, then you know, then it's time to okay. So, what's the Republican Party going to be in the post-Trump era? And I think there's a, a desire to to maybe discard much of what has transpired over the last four years. Well, um, you're you're not going to be able to do that if you want to stop the advance of the left. Yeah. So you know, we're divided on this internally. We have different writers with different takes on it. We have some folks that are just frank restorationist mm-hmm. and thinks mm-hmm. the, the whole Trump thing is, is a wrong turn. It's a weird aberration and the party should snap back. And, you know, as, as you know, we've talked about this over the years. I'm uncomfortable with a lot of things Trump does and, and some substantive things as well. But I don't think the party's ever going way all the way back. I don't think it should go all the way back. Uh, and, and this is another sign that it, that's not going to happen. He is Rich Lowry, editor of National Review, Fox News contributor, author of The Case for Nationalism, How It Made Us Powerful, United, and Free. Rich, thanks for joining us. All right. Let's hope for the best. Yep. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Uh, this is a pedestrian matter, given all that's happening. But uh, U.S. private employers adding 365,000 jobs in October. That is missing the uh, 650,000 projected. But uh, again, this is the ADP figure, which has often been off, not the official Department of Labor number that we'll get on Friday. But the uh, recovery from COVID continues, at least for the parts of the country that are open. For more on the economics of 
COVID lockdowns, as well as, of course, presidential politics and the electoral count. We're pleased to be joined again by Steve Moore, economist, Wall Street Journal columnist, author of Trumponomics. And Steve, uh, well, at least congratulations on being right about the uh, graduated state income tax going down in Illinois. You got that going for you right now. Woo! You know, Illinois is saved from Armageddon. Uh, <laughs> that's a really positive result. It, we uh, staved off uh, economic Armageddon by voting down the graduated state income tax in Illinois, you said. Uh, have we staved off economic Armageddon at the federal level by uh, maintaining Republican control of the Senate? It looks good for the Republicans to maintain their lead. But, you know, if Biden were to win, and again, I think it's really totally a toss-up right now, but you know, that would obviously put a break on you know, this lunatic economic ideas, but we'll see. I mean, you mentioned these unemployment numbers that came out today. I mean, the economy is really hot. I mean, what happened here, folks, is it wasn't so much that the pollsters were wrong, although they were, you know, remember 10 days ago, they said it would be a blue wave. Uh, and, and there was a big thing about uh, Democrats are going to take a, a sledgehammer to the red wall in, in the South. And of course, that never happened. They were off by about six, seven points in Florida. But I think the interesting thing about this race was how strongly Trump closed. And on election day, Trump just crushed Biden. Uh, the problem for Trump was all these early votes, many of which happened two or three weeks ago, before all this good economic news came in. And, you know, that's why we have to kind of think about, well, you know, there is an election day. It's not election month. And uh, so I'm not I'm not really pleased about the fact that there were a lot of people probably if they could have, would have changed their vote, given how strongly the economy, you know, economic performance was in the last three weeks with the blockbuster GDP report and that kind of thing. Uh, what did you make? I mean, just as just sort of an anomaly, and it didn't really change the nature of the can- of the of the election. But Fox News calling Virginia for Biden when there was zero percent reporting. Then, I mean, then there's like, you know, 55, 60 percent reporting Trump still up a double digits in Virginia. He never expected to win Virginia, didn't expect him to win Virginia, no matter how much you tried uh, there in northern Virginia, Steve. And ultimately he didn't. But it was just bizarre. Then they took it off the board. Then they put it back on the board. I mean, I, I, I just a commentary on the media again, since you're not just an economist, you're part of the media, too. Virginia, I live in Virginia, so I've seen this. I've followed this for 30 years. So every, you know, especially for the last 10 or 12 years, is Virginia, when I moved to Virginia 30 years ago, it was a red state. Then about 10 years ago, it was a purple state, and it has now turned into a blue state. You know why, Dan. Federal employees. Because the biggest growth sector in Virginia is the federal government. <laughs> and so you have massive amounts of federal government workers in northern Virginia. So the pattern is always the same. The Republican jumps off this huge lead because Virginia is like, you know, so many other states. It's two states. It's Northern Virginia and the rest of the state is all Republican. So you get these huge leads coming, you know, in the middle of the, you know, the middle of the election announcement. And then Northern Virginia just swamps everything else. The one that puzzles me more than Virginia, because I knew we weren't going to, Arizona, I mean, they called Arizona and Arizona still has, I think the last time I checked about 10, 15 percent of the vote not counted. And Arizona is a, is a total battleground state. And the Trump people are telling me they think they can still win Arizona. And you all remember what happened in 2000. What year was it? When they called Florida for, was it Gore? Yeah. Uh, no, no. They called Gore. They called Florida for Kerry. Remember that? And it turned out, no, Kerry didn't win Florida. Bush won Florida. Right, that was right, two, right, right. Uh, when well, was that? 2004. 2004. 2004. But, but, I mean, Doug Ducey uh, tweeted last night, it's far too early to call the governor. It's far too early to call the election in Arizona. Election Day votes are not fully reported. We haven't even started to count early ballots dropped off at the polls. Right. And and so he, he cautioned a uh, hold as well. But but just one, one thing on Virginia, though. 
It's not the point that Virginia would know, wasn't going to go Biden the entire night. Of course it was. It's the point of how the media handles it. And, and this is Fox News I'm criticizing here. Why don't you just tell people? I know you're probably looking at that and you see uh, you see Trump up 20 points and we're calling it for Joe Biden. Here's how Virginia works. Why don't you just tell people what you just told us so that everybody says, oh, OK, fine. Otherwise, uh, it's just it's just po- it's just poor communication on behalf of the media to the audience. Yeah, they should tell because I was paying attention to the analytics guys. Who, so, for example, I kept, ta- you know, at one point, Trump with like 75 percent of the vote in, you know, Trump was losing North Carolina by a big amount. And I kept telling my friends, no, Trump's going to win North Carolina. Right. Like, are you looking at the same thing I am? Right. And, and so you know, it matters where the votes are coming in from. And the problem for Trump right now is that uh, apparently a lot of the uncounted votes in Michigan and Pennsylvania are the mail-in ballots. And those, you know, if that's the case, those are probably, you know, they lean, they certainly lean Biden. So, um, you know, we will see. But this is, there's a lot of problem, though. The one thing I strongly object to and that Trump strongly objects to is there's this idea that you can have ballots that aren't even delivered yet. That's crazy. That is crazy. crazy. It could come down to, you know, the Postal Service delivering these ballots in in the next three days. We may not know until Friday or Saturday or Sunday. And we're just playing on hypotheticals since we don't know the outcome. So hypothetically, Trump wins a second term. What is the first order of business in terms of his economic policy agenda? The big question right now, Dan, is is the uh, is what happens with this stimulus. Right. You know, that's outstanding. And, uh, you know, I think if Trump wins. Then I think he will sign a deal with Pelosi that you know will be more to his liking. If he loses, I don't know what ha- I've been asked that question a hundred times by reporters. What's going to happen with the stimulus? I don't know. I don't know what Trump will do if he loses. Maybe if I, I would advise him, look, if, if Biden really wants a two and a, two and a half trillion dollar, you know, let him do uh, it. Relief package, but we don't need. Let him own it. You shouldn't. You shouldn't sign it. If he if he wins, getting beyond the COVID relief package, if he wins, what should be? You know, what would you advise him to be number one oh. on his agenda come the, his second term, come post January twenty? Uh, uh, it's a great question, and, and to the highest priority for the country is school choice. Totally giving right. every, and Trump is often on that issue. Let's give every single child in America access to a good school because. You know, half the kids in America, and probably more, do not have access to good schools. Competition and choice win. Take on the teachers' unions. That's something Joe Biden would never, never, never do. In fact, did you see? He was saying that he might, he might pick the education department chair to be the the former head of the teachers' union. Sure, of course. <laughs> that helps. And by the way, that's exactly right. And this is the moment to do it because of the because of the school shutdowns. This is the time to do it, Stephen Moore. Economist, Wall Street Journal columnist, Trumponomics author. Thanks, Steve. Take care. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show as we close out today. Some of the uh, takeaways from Tuesday, things that uh, will not be undone regardless of the outcome. We finally flipped it. This from uh, our friend uh, Selena Zito writing over at uh, Washington Examiner. That was the reaction of Tom McCabe, the chairman of Honing County Republican Party, at a jubilant campaign headquarters on Market Street in Youngstown, Ohio. 
on Tuesday night. The uh, win there not only propelled Trump to uh, an easy eight-point victory in Ohio again. No Republican has ever won the presidency without winning Ohio. Only two Democrats have ever won the White House without it. That would be Grover Cleveland and John Kennedy. Trump, uh, of course, as I said, winning Ohio going away. He lost uh, Mahoning County narrowly against Hillary four years ago by about uh, two percentage points. But um, why? And and what perhaps is the lasting impact of Trump's presidency, even if it's only one term? Poli-sci professor at Youngstown State, Trump's victory in uh, Trumbull and Mahoning counties demonstrates that change is going on in America's two-party system. These two counties were among the most reliable Democrat votes in the states as recently as 2012. Now, however, the working class voters that dominate these counties have found a new home. It was, I mean, it really was uh, consummated in, in 2016, but further solidified in 2020. At least if the Republican Party is going to be something that resembles, that's going to feature something that resembles Trump's policy agenda. And focus, you know, exa- I'm here to specifically focus on these constituency groups being that explicit. This uh, policy professor, the voters there, Mahoning County, places like Youngstown, always socially conservative, but resisted voting for Republicans because they were the party of the rich. Now, ironically, they found a Republican champion in the New York billionaire who promised to renegotiate the trade deals that many voters have feel destroyed their communities. Selena Zito reports that his win had some coattails for local Republicans. Some local state house races were uh, on the verge of flipping to the GOP as of her reporting last evening. I'm just going to continue to repeat this because you have to rinse and repeat. Working people, middle-income people in uh, all walks of life that play by the rules, that love this country, that are striving to raise family, striving to do their part to make America uh, everything that they want it to be for their kids. I will take, trade them out uh, every day of the week and twice on Sunday for the effete suburban pseudo-intellectual, identitarian doofuses that the Republican Party has otherwise tried to court for, well, pre-Trump, the suburban soccer moms, which is sort of a catch-all term that includes some people that are commonsensical and right-thinking and fit the description that I'm applying to those folks in Mahoning County, but others who simply do not, and we should not waste a single moment trying to fold them in because actually their presence is cancerous whether it's in a small group setting or as part of a political party, certainly they shouldn't be catered to. And if that's one of the lasting effects of Trump's presidency, whether it's a four-year experience or an eight-year experience, then he will have done something truly to make America great again. Thanks for joining us on this edition of The Dan Prof Show. Please do so again tomorrow with uh, yet another update on uh, the outcome of Tuesday, to be sure. Thank you. This is the Dan Proft Show.